Uh, Our scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 29. And this is found on page 869 in the Pew Bible. And, And we say this every week and we mean it. We definitely mean this. If you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home with you because we want everyone to have a copy of God's word in their home. So this is the word of the Lord. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, Jesus, and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, with, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. But the man, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Paul. And good morning. Welcome uh, to the Brookside campus Uh, again, especially if you're, this is your first Sunday, you're newer. uh, Thanks for coming uh, through those church doors. I know it's not an easy thing to do, whether you're new to church or whether you're just new to this church. Um, So thanks for doing that uh, this morning. We're really glad that you're here. And uh, as John mentioned at the beginning of the service, we are embarking on a new series uh, called Neighborly Love. And as we begin this series today, looking at this uh, story in Luke chapter 10, um, this encounter that Jesus had with this religious leader, I'd love to begin with prayer, not only for uh, this message, but really for our time in the series going forward. So I'm going to do that for us now as we begin. Father in heaven, Thank you that we can address you as our Father, and thank you that you've given us the gift, the treasure of your word, um, that you have preserved it, uh, and that you allow us to hear you speak through it, um, even now. And I pray that that would happen for each of us this morning, for, for me and for everyone gathered here, that as we look at Luke chapter 10, that we would hear your voice clearly. We pray this in Jesus' name, for his glory, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, recently the Wall Street Journal ran uh, an article with this headline. Congratulations, class of 2015. You are the most indebted ever for now. And the article begins this way. The class of 2015 is reaching new heights, perhaps though not the way they'd hoped. College graduates this year are leaving school as the most indebted class ever, a title they will hold exclusively for all of about 12 months if the current trends hold true. And this is because it's gone up every year for about the past 20 years. And this notion of, of college debt and the, the problem that it is in our country has already become a, a major talking point in the 2016 presidential campaign. And, and this whole idea of college debt, it, it scares me to death every time I think about it in relationship to Lucy. And honestly, this is true. One, one of the first things I thought when we found out that Rachel is expecting, we're expecting another baby in April is, oh my goodness, an, another college education to, to think about and about saving for. And it, but it's not just college, though, right? I mean, there's, there's mortgage payments, auto loans, credit card debt, uh, payday loans. They're, they're all begging for every penny of income we can squeeze. 
And, and this is compounded by the fact that many, many people in our city, I know this is true of some of you sitting here this morning, as well as around the world, that whether or not you have a college education, whether or not you have a bunch of college debt, what you desperately need is, is a job. You're desperately in need of a job. And there was that great 1967 song, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. Uh, it's the only thing that there's just too little of. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. No, not just for some, but for everyone. But today in 2015, the, the song is really more like what the world needs now is jobs, sweet jobs. It's the one thing there's just too little of. No, not just for some, but for everyone. And the question is not just today, does my work matter? Does what I do every day really matter? But increasingly, the question is, is there work for me to do? And as I talk to all of you, I, I hear this. <laughs> You're looking for a better job or a different job or just any job at all. Or for some of you who are older, the question is, when will I have enough saved to be able to retire or will I have enough saved that when I can't work anymore that I won't be a burden to my family? I mean, even at 33, I, I regularly think about that. How much am I able to put away? Will it be enough? So when I retire, I won't be a burden. The question we want to ask in this Neighborly Love series is, is does the Bible have anything to say about those kinds of questions? What does the Bible say, if anything, about human flourishing, including economic flourishing? And, and does it have anything to say about economic flourishing? The more that I've studied and learned, I believe the answer is yes. That it really speaks to this question. And whether or not you're here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian, there's a good chance that you've heard that Christians are supposed to love God and love their neighbors. Uh, Christians call this, this teaching the, the great commandment. Jesus taught that, that loving God and our neighbors is at the very heart of what it means to be a, a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. But what does loving our neighbor look like in our daily lives? Is it about bringing a meal to a family when, when they're sick or they've had a baby? Is it about mowing their lawn when they're on vacation? Yes, that's, it's about that for sure. And, and you as a congregation have, have done those things for our family when we've been in those situations. But what if Jesus has more in mind when he talks about neighborly love? What if neighborly love speaks into the collaborative work that, that you and I do every day? What if neighborly love fuels the economic flourishing of people around the world. You see, a closer look at the Gospels reveals that Jesus talked more about money and work and economics than we might have imagined. You see, most of Jesus' parables, these stories that he told to teach his disciples something, most of these take place in the context of a, of a farming economy. And when he preached, it wasn't primarily to the religious elite in the synagogue or the temple. It was in the marketplace, surrounded by buyers and sellers, farmers and craftsmen. Jesus spent the majority of his life on planet Earth, learning a trade, running a small business as a carpenter. 
We forget that sometimes. I mean, Jesus started his ministry in his early 30s, what we talk about, his, his preaching ministry. But all that time before, he was working in a carpet shop, running a family business. So what, if anything, does the Bible have to say about economic flourishing? And what if it says as much or is concerned about that just as much as it is our spiritual flourishing? What if the gap between those two things is not nearly as far apart as we imagined? These are the questions that we want to answer, that we want to try to reflect on and begin to think through in this Neighborly Love series. You see, the world that we live in is an economic world, and that's a good part of God's design for the world. The economics, the economy, are not a result of sin, even though it maybe feels like that in, in high school econ class. But we do know that all is not as it should be. Uh, the latest job reports, the housing starts numbers, consumer confidence, all these things indicate that, that all is not as it should be with the economy and how it works, not just here but around the world. And we feel it uh, with the, the Federal Reserve Bank and, and interest rates, right, that, that we're waiting to, to hear, will they go up? Will they stay flat? Will they, when will they change? And every word or even non-word from Janet Yellen, the chairman of the Fed Bank, on that is instantly analyzed, weighed, and thought through. So does our faith have anything to say about our economic lives? You hear me say this regularly, I hope, that the gospel changes everything. That the good news about Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his coming kingdom, that, that all of these speak into every facet of our lives. But what about this area? Does the gospel have anything to say here? Well, this morning we're going to take what I hope is a fresh look at one of Jesus' most well-known parables, these stories that he uses to teach. It's often called the parable of the Good Samaritan. The text doesn't use that language, but it's what we've kind of known it as in the church. And as we look at this story, we're going to ask three questions. What does God want? Who is my neighbor and how do I love? So what does God want? What does he really desire from us? Who is our neighbor and how do we love? So first, what does God want? And this is what you see right off the, the bat in this story. Before we get to the, the parable, the story that Jesus tells, Luke lets us in on the context, the question that led up to the story. See, an expert in the Old Testament, they called him a lawyer, but he's a scholar of the Old Testament. That's the kind of law he was an expert in. Comes to Jesus and he says, calling Jesus teacher, rabbi, he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, as he so often does, answers his question with another question. Basically says, well, you're, you're a Bible scholar. What does the Bible say? And the expert's response is, is right on. It's brilliant. He quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus immediately affirms this response, and he says, yeah, that's exactly right. 
So in other words, the guy already knew the answer to the question he was asking, which should tip us off that there's something more going on here. And it becomes clear with the second question that he asks. And that question comes to us in verse 29. Luke gives us a glimpse into the man's heart, his motivation. Listen to verse 29 again. But he, the scholar desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So he says, tell me, Jesus, exactly who is my neighbor? I I get it, love God, love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? What does it mean that this man is trying to justify himself? That's the question we have to ask here, because that's maybe a little bit of a different concept for us. When Luke says he was trying to justify himself by asking this question, what does he mean by that? We actually see similar language come up later on in Luke in chapter 16, where Jesus is talking to another group of religious leaders, the Pharisees. And they were lovers of money, and they had been ridiculing Jesus. And so Jesus responds to them by saying this. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. To justify yourself is to look the part, but not actually be the part. To present goodness that you don't really have. It's hypocrisy. See, the Pharisees, they wanted to look generous in Luke 16. That's the context. They wanted to appear generous, but actually in their hearts, they were really greedy. And back in our story here in Luke chapter 10... The man wants to look like he loves his neighbor, but really he just wants the path of least resistance to eternal life on his terms. He wants to look the part, but not actually play the part, which is why he even asked the question. Because to ask, who is my neighbor, assumes that there are people he doesn't want to have to love. And he's not going to waste a second loving someone that he's not forced to love by God, that doesn't meet his own ends of gaining eternal life. But at this point, we're already starting to get a little bit ahead of ourselves. Because what we want to ask here is the question, what does God require of us? What does God want from us? Well, He wants you to love Him supremely, and He wants you to love others sacrificially. To love God and to love your neighbor I mean, the entire Bible is summed up in those two expectations. Love your God with all your heart, your soul, mind, and strength. Love the one true God. And then love your neighbor as you love yourself. But Jesus has received this question from the lawyer. Who is my neighbor? And so since it's out there, we might as well look and see. How does Jesus respond? How does he answer this question? Who is my neighbor? Well, he answers in verses 30 through 37 with a story. And I love this about Jesus. He doesn't just make a list. He doesn't just set some parameters. But he invites us into a story. A story of a man making a long walk, a long trek, 17 miles from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's a, it was a populated road. It was a, it was a frequent travel route, but it passed through places where it was easy for robbers to hide, where it was easy to be ambushed. 
It reminds me of a road in, in northern Kenya, and the times that I've been there to visit our partners. As you leave Nairobi and start heading to the north of Kenya, it's a much less developed part of the country. And there's a long highway. It's, it's constantly improving. It's a well-used highway. But there's parts of it where you travel through just vast open space where there's no one around. There's lots of places where bandits can hide and assault vehicles and rob the occupants. And this is a real danger in traveling in that part of the country. And it's exactly what happens to this man on his trip from Jerusalem to Jericho. He's walking down and he's, he's attacked by robbers. He's brutally beaten. He's robbed of everything that he has. And he's left bleeding, broken, to die on an arid road in the blazing sun. Doesn't look good for this guy. But thankfully, someone comes along. It's a priest, a Jewish priest, and he's making his way down to Jericho, and there he sees the man on the road. Hope begins to rise, but he doesn't stop. And not only does he not stop, he, he makes a point to go out of his way not to get near this mess on the road. And hope is lost again. A little while later, someone else comes. You can just imagine this guy on the road, if he's even still conscious, he's, he hears someone coming, maybe his eyes are swollen shut, and there's hope again. This time it's a Levite, another religious leader, another Jew. But again, the guy passes by and doesn't even stop. Next comes a Samaritan walking by. Now, Samaritans, you have to know, they were both racially and religiously looked down upon by the Jews. If you were a Jew, you did not like Samaritans. And so the people listening to Jesus' story at this moment— Many of them were probably Jews. At this point, aren't thinking, oh good, a Samaritan's coming. All is saved. They're, in fact, they're probably thinking, they don't know what Jesus is going to say yet. They're probably thinking, oh, not a Samaritan. He's probably going to do something even worse to this guy. And the Samaritan, he's not a religious leader, uh, but more likely he's a businessman on a, on a trip down to the economic center that, that uh, Jericho was. It was a vibrant place of commerce. But the Samaritan sees the man and he has compassion. Compassion is the word that Jesus uses. And then the Samaritan crosses every line that he can. He crosses the lines of racial bigotry, religious prejudice, and he doesn't just help the man in the moment. I mean, yes, he stops the bleeding, but he interrupts his life, his business trip, and he takes the ailing man to an inn so that he can begin to recover. You see, the surprising hero of the story is the Samaritan businessman, not a religious Jewish leader. And there's a pretty sharp contrast here, one that has been brought out any time I've heard this story taught, and there's the contrast between religious hypocrisy and genuine compassion. You see, the Levite, the priest, the Samaritan, they all saw the man on the road, but only the Samaritan saw him through the eyes of God as a neighbor in need. 
And when Jesus tells us the story, He uses that word compassion. And if you do a little digging on that word in the original language, you see that it's a really powerful word. It expresses this heartfelt feeling of empathy, of really resonating with, of placing yourself in the shoes of the person in suffering and need. And actually, the same word used for compassion appears in Luke chapter 15 in another one of Jesus' well-known parables, the parable of the prodigal son. And this is the story that Jesus tells of a man's a father's son who had gone off to a far country. He squandered his inheritance. He ended up economically, physically, spiritually, emotionally desperate. And this guy had been selfish. He was terrible to his own father, his family, but he sort of still has the gall to say, I'm going to come back and, and ask my dad for a job. But when his father sees him from a far way off, he has compassion on him. It's the same word Jesus uses here in Luke 10. In other words, when the Samaritans saw the man beaten, robbed, left for dead on the road, he didn't see him as a Jew or a Samaritan. He didn't see him as, as wealthy or poor. He saw him as he would a needy son. Neighborly love doesn't know sort of this category of the other. It only knows the category of family. Our neighbor isn't an other, but it's like seeing a long lost son or daughter, brother or sister. So who is your neighbor? Jesus basically says, well, think about the person who you don't want to be your neighbor. That person's your neighbor. But that person's not just your neighbor. They are like family to you. So let me ask you this. Just pause and think, who's the last person that you want to be your neighbor? Who is the, the other to you? The them to your us. And maybe it's a different political party. Maybe it's a different religious tradition. Maybe a different race. Maybe it's someone in your own family. Families get messy. And this is the part of the story that many of us probably know well. And I know I need to be reminded of it regularly because our tendency is to approach life like the man in the story and is talking with Jesus and says, well, who, who Jesus really is my neighbor? Because I know that that's my tendency. It's sort of what's the bare minimum of sacrifice and love I have to make to sort of fit into this category of being worthy of eternal life. But there's a second contrast that Jesus brings out, a contrast that we tend to miss. And it's in the answer that Jesus gives to the question that isn't even asked here. Because the question that's asked is the question, who is my neighbor? But as Jesus answers that question, he also answers another question implicitly. And that's the question, how do I actually love my neighbor? Not just who is my neighbor, but how do I love them? And it's clear that the story of the Samaritan is not just defining, about defining who is your neighbor, but it's a call to action. It's a call to actually love your neighbor. 
this is where the story ends, right? In verses 36 and 37, Jesus asks the man, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell in among the robbers? And the, the teacher, the scholar, he replies, he says, the one who showed him mercy. And then Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. Jesus says to the man, now that you know who your neighbor is, go and do likewise. Go and love your neighbor like this. You see, true neighborly love is a call to action, to love in the world, in word and in deed. Not just to sort of, it's not enough just to say, well, okay, now I know my neighbor is all these people, not just the people that I like or the people next door. If, if we just say, well, I know who my neighbor is, that's, we haven't gone far enough. We actually have to help our neighbor to go and do likewise. Again, this is the second contrast that Jesus lays out in the passage. The first is between the Samaritan and the religious leaders, between hypocrisy and compassion. But the second contrast is an economic one between the thieves and the Samaritans, between an economic injustice on the part of the thieves and economic healing on the part of the Samaritan. It's in this contrast that Jesus unpacks how we are to love our neighbor. So how do you love your neighbor? Let me answer that question with two words. How do you love your neighbor? With compassion and with capacity. With compassion and with capacity. So first, with compassion, and we've already even done a little work on that word, that you have to rightly see everyone around you as your neighbor, to be moved in your inner being, to see them as family, to, to love them sacrificially. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes further. To love your neighbor doesn't just mean to have warm feelings about them, but you actually have to have capacity to help them. It's compassion and capacity together. To love your neighbor, you need the capacity to help your neighbor. Because think about all the ways that the Samaritan does this in the story, right? He, he doesn't just stop the bleeding, which he does. He pulls the first aid kit off the you know, out of the glove box of the donkey or whatever. He pulls out the first aid kit and he stops the bleeding, but he goes so much further than that. He takes this guy to an inn. He, he pulls out his credit card and says to the innkeeper, here, take care of him. Put everything you need on this card and I'll be back for more if it's needed. See, it's a total contrast of economic injustice, the robbers who wrongfully took what wasn't theirs, and the economic goodness of the Samaritan who generously gave of what was rightly his. Uh, Middle Eastern scholar Kenneth Bailey points this out, this, that really the story of the, the Good Samaritan is bookended by these economic contrasts. He writes that there's really kind of seven scenes in this story. And in scene one, the robbers take all of the man's possessions. And in scene seven, the Samaritan pays for the man out of his own resources because the man has nothing. Jesus has something very important to say to us in this story. See, loving our neighbor is about not just compassion, but capacity. You see, compassion without capacity is really frustrating to be in a situation where you want with all your heart to be able to help but don't have the capacity to do anything, to feel that helplessness. Because compassion ultimately requires capacity to be able to help. And in this story, the Samaritan's capacity comes from his diligent labor and his, his wise financial stewardship. 
and he uses that capacity to uh, add value to others, especially to the man lying on the side of the road. See, Jesus reminds us that the best workers make the best neighbors. The best workers make the best neighbors. And Paul impacts this in a very similar way in his letter to the Ephesians. Paul was apostle. He was an early church leader, and he went around planting churches, and one of the churches that he started was in this little city of Ephesus, also a big economic center. And he writes these words, and they echo so well what Jesus talks about here in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Just listen to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. Paul says, let the thief no longer steal. So we have this character of the thief coming back in. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands. And then Jesus gives, or Paul gives us the purpose statement, so that, let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with those in need. I mean, do you see what Paul is saying here? The gospel not only addresses our spiritual lives, presses into our economic realities also. The gospel compels us to live in such a God-honoring way that, that we do honest work, making honest profit and cultivating economic capacity so that we can assist others with their economic needs. The gospel calls us to be people who add value to the world around us, not just to take value from it, to be people who, through our creativity, through our, our skills, actually add to the beauty, to the, the goodness of the world, rather than just to take and consume from it. Now, at this point, there's probably a lot of different things going through your head. But many of you may be thinking something along the lines of, of Bill, I, I think what I hear you saying is that Part of what this parable, what Jesus is calling us to, is to, to earn more so that we have the ability to, to give more. But you've got to understand, like right now, I just don't make that much money. I'm unemployed or I'm, I'm underemployed. We're going to spend a lot of time on that in, in upcoming sermons. But the reality is, is this, for the vast majority of us, and, and not to in any way undermine those who are in that position of, of feeling underemployed or, or underemployed, but for the vast majority of us in this room, compared with people throughout history, as well as around the world today, we have unimaginable wealth. Maybe it doesn't feel like that. But for most of us, even if we feel like we don't have much in comparison to those who live around us, compared with, with most of the people around the world today, we have so much. Now, maybe some of us in this room have been given the gifts and have the, the resources that, that they could create capacity to buy this man beaten on the road an entirely new house. Others of us maybe are here this morning and all we can do is, is we can get them a new shirt. And some of us have more, some of us have less. But it's not the amount that matters. We are all called to create capacity to generous living, capacity and compassion. Uh, second, others of you may be thinking something similar but slightly different, and that may be, Bill, I work really hard, but my job as a stay-at-home parent or as someone who's retired, it doesn't come with a paycheck anymore. 
I don't, I don't get paid for the hard work I do all day, so how am I going to create capacity? And I want to show you a video that I think helps reframe some of this conversation and helps us answer some of those concerns about how this applies to us. So take a look. I'm just a florist. Got a small shop. Nothing special. Silly way to spend your life, I guess, fussing with a bunch of flowers. Sometimes I wish I was good at something else. I don't know, a doctor or a missionary, someone who really helps people. But I do love flowers. Always had an act for it. So I do my best to make them beautiful for people. But I know flowers can't change the world. I know I don't make much of a difference. I'm just a florist. paid or unpaid is part of the goodness that God has designed for people to experience in his world. What I love about what this video showcases is not only does this woman, this florist, this just a florist, actually do massive work to help change the world through her paid work, through her shop, but you see at the end, also through the giving of her time, her resources, her emotion with, with her neighbor and her building. See, Jesus' call for us to create capacity in our lives to love our neighbor most definitely includes money, but it's not limited to money. And we can create capacity in other ways as well. And to love your neighbor, you need to create capacity to help your neighbor. So how do we actually grow in neighborly love? And I just want to suggest two things as we begin uh, this series, as we begin on this journey together over the next two, or the next six weeks. I just want to suggest two things. First, know your neighbor. And, And start with proximity. Start with the people who live right with you, in your same living space, in your home, with, with your roommate, with your spouse, with your kids. And then your actual physical neighbors, the, the people who live next door or across the street. Think about your workplace. 
your gym, the, the coffee shop, the playgroup, your classroom, the team you're on at school, and your church family too. I mean, the people in your community group, the people sitting next to you in the pew this morning, they're your neighbors. And this story also shows us that, that it's not just those who are like us, right? It's, it's also the immigrants who live just a few miles from us here. It's the, it's the urban poor and the suburban poor. It's the racial and religious outcasts. And, and increasingly in a, in a globalized world, there's really no end to this list of people who are our neighbors because through child sponsorship programs, a, a child in India or Rwanda can be your neighbor. A pastor in prison in Iran can be your neighbor. You see, the Samaritan was attentive. He saw his neighbor. So do you really see your neighbors? There's one, a great definition of love, which is love is focused attention. Are you paying attention? Are you attentive to the people around you? Or, or do we walk right by someone whose life has fallen apart and, and have no idea because we're just not paying attention? So know your neighbor. Work hard to know your neighbor. Second, uh, help them. Seek to help your neighbor. This is Jesus' whole point. To, to know your neighbors and then to actually love them, to help them. The, the place in your life with the highest potential for helping your neighbor is actually not here in this room for 75 minutes on a Sunday morning. It's actually once you leave this place. Because yes, we believe deeply, passionately that the local church, as God designed it, is the hope of the world. But the church isn't these stones and timbers and, and carpeting. This church is, is you. And you are the church everywhere you go with everything that you do. And so the place that you can most fully love your neighbor, it's the place that you spend the most time. And for the majority of us here, that's at, our, that's at work. See, if you do good work well, you are loving your neighbor. Isn't that a beautiful picture in that video of, of good work well done loving the neighbors that she didn't even know? Providing a product or a service, raising the next generation, studying hard in school, good work well done is loving your neighbor. When you do those things with an attitude of worship, you are obeying Jesus. Because even in this story, and I love this, the innkeeper had an important role to play, didn't he? I mean, he ran a good business, a good inn that the Samaritan could actually take him to. So create something of value. Make money. Start businesses. Create jobs. Manage wealth. And if you're a stay-at-home parent, you're doing that also. I know it maybe doesn't feel like it, but raising people of character is loving your neighbor. Raising generous people creates capacity. As a stay-at-home parent, you're doing this. I'm going to talk a lot more about this in the weeks to come, but it's our responsibilities as people who actually are made in, who bear God's image for all of us to create economic flourishing, even in the midst of a broken world. And then with the resources that, that we may create capacity to give extravagantly, margins margin so you can be generous even beyond a tithe. And money, yes, with your time also, your emotions, relationships, your ability to listen and encourage every one of us here has capacity. And the question is, what are we going to do with it? 
So at this point, I, I know I feel this. Does anyone else just, just feel overwhelmed? Maybe powerless. I know whenever I, I study a text like this and begin to see new things, there's even guilt that can come. Wow, I've really missed it. I haven't been doing all that this has called me to. And the story of the Samaritan puts me right in that place. Because I so often spend my capacity on myself. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to have. Or I want to limit who my neighbor is to to ask God, do I really have to love that people or meet this need? Is that person really my neighbor? But imagine that injured man who was robbed, uh, finally waking up in that inn, whole, his life is restored, the bill has been paid. I mean, maybe he doesn't even know exactly how he got there or what happened or, or who paid. Imagine him walking back to Jerusalem, seeing someone else in need, lying on the road, abused, beaten, How do you think he responds now? Because friends, that's us. If if you're a Christian, the story of the Good Samaritan isn't just a parable. It's our story. We are the one in need. We are the guy beaten up on the side of the road. We are vulnerable. We are poor. We are helpless. No matter how powerful we may be in the world's eyes, spiritually, we are desperately, hopelessly lost. We are the one, because of our own sin and brokenness, who are lying on the road, left for dead, unwanted, unloved, without hope. So Jesus came. Offering more than just first aid, more than just good advice to help good people be a little better. But with grace and forgiveness and life to bring dead people back to life. And his compassion cost him everything, the very riches of heaven to the very depths of the cross. But you see, Jesus didn't just have compassion. He also had, as the Son of God, the capacity to pay our debt, to pay the bill, to take my sin and my shame on himself, to rescue me, to make us whole again. And it's only when we begin to understand how vulnerable we are, how poor we truly are, how helpless we are, only then can we see the miracle it is that, that God treated us as his neighbor, that he treated me as his neighbor, and not just as his neighbor, but his family that he's adopted us as sons and daughters and as a recipient of such extravagant love, then we can go and do likewise and love our neighbor. Let's do this together. Let's pray. Father, we rejoice in you, the one who is overflowing with endless capacity to love, to create, to redeem, to restore. As people made in your image, as people being remade in the image of Christ, will we follow after you in that work of creating capacity to love our neighbor? pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.